We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast bringing you big ideas from the small island of Tasmania. The show is proudly supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. So go to their website, edgeradio.org.au, for more information about the good things they're doing or how you could get involved. My name is Dr. Neve Chapman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kelsey Pickard, and we have an expert guest, Meng Young, who's going to be telling us a lot about bees. But I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palawa people, as we record on Lutruwita, and acknowledge the traditional owners of where you are listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. So, listeners, we're going to be talking about bees today, why they're so important to agriculture, how they are under threat, and how research could help inform us of more sustainable farming practices to protect these tiny insects. So to help us uh, and tell us more about this, we've got an expert guest. Kelsey, can you tell us a little bit more about our guest? Uh, so today our guest is Mingyong Lim, who's a PhD student um, at the University of Tasmania's Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture, or TIA. So Ming Yong, I'm so excited to have you on the show. This has been a topic that I've been wanting to talk about for a really long time. Um, we constantly hear about how vital bees are to the survival of so many plant species as well as so many of our food sources. So can you start by telling us just how important are bees to our food sources? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, bees are, well, they are vital for pollination and from memory I think they are responsible for more than three quarters of our um, crops. And that includes your um, fruits, your seeds, your nuts. A lot of things that you eat um, are pollinated by bees. So like um, in Tassie, our cherries, our fruits that are very famous for, that we're very famous for, yep, those those are quite important crops. Mm. How do bees pollinate things in such a way that it contributes to such a, a huge amount of our crops? Um, so bees pollinate by visiting flowers. Um, they go to flowers to pick up pollen, um, and that is actually used for um, feeding their babies, their little larvae. But in the process, they transport pollen from their body from one flower to another. And even though they have preferences for certain um, flowers, they do pollinate a wide range of crops. And so that's why they become so important. And and I guess another aspect of it is it has been domesticated. So we've got beekeepers for a very, very long time, dates back to ancient times. And since then, like we've been able to move bees around and um, honeybees, especially the Western honeybee, that's the most, um, I guess, popular bees to be used um, commercially. They have been introduced to many places and including Australia. So they're not native to Australia, but they've been introduced here. And because they've been domesticated, we've been able to um, use them to help us pollinate our crops. Yeah. Is that like the fluffy bee, the fuzzy one, or uh, the skinny bee? Um, the skinny bee. Okay. Both <laughs> are actually fluffy. They, they, they both have like um, oh, really? hairs on them. Yeah. But the really fuzzy one, it's the bumblebee. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Thanks. <laughs> And so I guess we're sort of using bees for two purposes. One would be, well, the major bonus of pollinating our crops so we get fruit produced from the crops, but also secondary, the domestication was for honey. Yes, right? yes, absolutely, yep. Okay, and so 
Just thinking when you said um, about how we've domesticated bees and we can move them around, do people who are farming fruit or some kind of crop deliberately have beehives nearby? Yes. Um, I know of one instance is um, Beejo, which is a seed company. They've... Um, I think it was a while ago, maybe a few years back. I'm 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 not super sure about this, mm-hmm. but because I have a a colleague who is a senior, um, she used to study agriculture as well, but she's working for Bejos. I'm assuming that she's still working for mm-hmm. Bejos. Um, but she, uh, from her, I I um heard that they started their own little apiculture, so they have their own hives, and they could um use that to pollinate their seed crops for seeds. Um, but otherwise, big orchards like um, reed fruits, for example, they um, hire hives from, from, from beekeepers. And huh. so every season, yes, yes. So they, they get beekeepers to deliver hives to their orchards or their um, um, crop areas. And, and the bees will be there for a few weeks or... Um, however long that they have hired them for, and and the bees will be there to pollinate their crops. Oh, that's really cool! That, I that's like a whole new meaning to worker bee, hey? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess uh, so. They can time it. They'll know when their plants are f- a peak mm. flower, so they'll get the bees in at that time. Mm. I did kind of wonder, as a home hobby gardener, you know, when your your plants are in flower and you quite don't get quite a very good yield, you kind of need to go around and like flick the flowers yeah. to pollinate. Well, that's the case for tomatoes anyway. And so I was like, I need more bees in my garden. So <laughs> yeah, it makes sense that they do that. Mm. Um, so I wanted to know, we know we hear a lot about how bees um, are currently under threat um, and the bee populations are dwindling. So what are the main threats to bee populations currently? Um, it's multifactorial, so like a lot of different um, factors are, are, are driving this decline. Um, first and foremost, there's um, the use of pesticides. A lot of um, insecticides, fungicides and herbicides, they all have their um, own impact on bee populations. But also there's a um, parasitic mite called Vero Destructor. It is very, very destructive towards um, hive health and once a hive is infected, if it is left untreated, it will die off within about two years or three years. And this parasite has, um, it originated, I think, in Asia or Southeast Asia from the Asian honeybee. It jumped host onto the Western honeybee and has this um, from there on spread across the world. So it's everywhere now except for um, Australia wow. and Antarctica. So, so that's that's how widespread it is, and um, along with a lot of different factors like climate change, um, pesticides, and um, farm beekeeping practices. Um, so, actually, over transporting them causes a decline in hive health as well. And along with um, this parasitic mite, it has caused what is known as um, the colony collapse disorder, where um, the hive just dies off um, suddenly because uh, bees live in, 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 in a social context where there's a lot of individuals in the hive. So they're able to actually buffer a lot of the um, symptoms of this, of this d- disorder, this colla- colony collapse disorder or the negative impacts of all these various um, 
influences that are causing the, the hive to be compromised. And so for a while, you won't see um, very, I guess, major symptoms or very obvious symptoms, but then it comes to a point where they can't go on anymore and it just dies off. Um, wow, that's pretty tragic. So there's mm. kind of like multiple factors mm. compounding on top. Yeah, so it's not just one one factor that's like, oh, this is what's causing bees to die off everywhere. It's actually quite a few different factors um, combined together that's that's driving this decline. That's interesting because then I suppose it means that there's lots of opportunity to try and test out new solutions mm. to mitigate some of those. Mm. And an another another point that I forgot to mention is disease. Disease that is um, spread by um, transporting hives around because when you when you have a diseased hive and you transport them to different locations, they they can potentially spread to hives, feral colonies that are that are in that area. And the parasitic mite that I mentioned before has also facilitated um, transfer of viruses and, and, and other diseases as well. So the varroa destructor mite, um, what what exactly does it do to the bees? Why is it killing them? Um, so they're ectoparasitic mites, which means that they um, they live outside the host. They, they're on the surface of the bee, and a female reproduces in a bee comb. So that means that when a honeybee egg is laid in a comb, it hatches into a larvae, which is like a little maggot or a little worm, and then it grows up, um, and it when it reaches maturation, when it's um, about to turn into a pupae, it, it gets capped in a cell, so it's in an enclosed area. Um, so that just before that, that's when the female mite goes in, and then and, and within that capped cap cell where there's a honeybee pupae, it lays its egg and then it feeds on the, the, the honey uh, the developing pupae and her babies feed on the honeybee um, pupae as well. So they don't kill it but they suck off um, insect blood which we call hemolymph. So we'll, we'll, I'll refer it to as bee blood for, for now so that everyone can understand. Um, it feeds on that and it feeds on the fat bodies as well. So that drains nutrients that are essential for a developing bee because once it's in its pupae form, it's not consuming anymore. So like by depleting that nutrient um, reserve, you're hampering the bee's growth. So when the bee emerges, it's, um, I guess, in a weaker state than if it, if it hasn't been parasitized by this mite. And... If the mite carries um, viruses, it transmits those viruses to the bee as well, so then it becomes infected and then it's um, it's compromised, so that's not good. Yeah, it sounds pretty horrific. And like, yeah, so stay with us. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. And in just a moment, we'll be talking more to Meng Young about his PhD work. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we're talking about bees. My name is Kelsey Pickard, and I'm joined by Dr. Neve Chapman, along with our expert guest, Ming-Yong Lim from the University of Tasmania. So in the previous segment, we were talking about how 
bees are often kept in close proximity to crops because we need bees to be pollinating crops. Um, and a lot of farming practices use things like pesticides or um, fungicides to try and keep their crops really healthy. Um, are any of these sort of spraying methods um, negative to bee health at all? Um, so with spraying methods, I guess... Um, wh when you decide to spray um, pesticides on your crop, you obviously have to look at the labels. And the labels, um, they will tell you, most, most chemical labels will, will specify if they are harmful to bees. And so if they are, then it is recommended that you do not spray when bees are active. Um, so I know in some areas they spray really early before the bees come out because... Um, Bees tend to come out to forage um, depending on weather conditions, whether it's warm enough, if it's too cold, if it's too windy, if it's raining, if it's raining, they don't go out of their hives. They're like, I'm going to be dry and warm <laughs> in my own hive. So, so there's that. You, you, you time your um, pesticide applications well that you don't um, spray when bees are about. I guess that's one bit, but when... You spray onto the crops. The crops are then exposed to the to 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 your pesticides. And um, what I guess what I'm interested in is is when bees go out to forage later on, will that will will that um, application still have residues in them? And when bees collect nectar and pollen back to their hive as food resources, will that affect their health? Yeah, I suppose it's obviously a really important question because the bees are literally eating what you've just sprayed. And so um, I imagine that these quantities that we're spraying on crops could be huge for a tiny, tiny bee. Um, mm. So how, how are you studying that? How are you measuring these things? Well, it's currently still in the works, but um, there's existing literature um, which I'm following the methods. So basically you have your... Um, I guess your sample matrices that you want to test for. So, so for my case, um, I'll be looking at honey, pollen, po in hive pollen, which is called bee bread, because bees, um, when they bring back pollen, they actually pack it into a cell and f let it ferment for a while. It turns into sort of like a, what we call bee bread. So I've got that. Um, I've also got wax, so beeswax. Um, that's just a comb. I've got honeybee larvae, and I've got honeybee adults as well. So all these samples I then store in the freezer, and basically I go through an extraction process where I um, try to extract the amount of pesticides or residual pesticides that are in, in my samples, and then I run them through with an instrument um, called mass, mass back mass, spectrometry um, that could either be liquid chromatography or gas chromatography but that's getting really sciencey basically what it does it's it then like um, detects if there are specific compounds in my matrices and if if it's there then it will tell me on the computer um, through little graphs and peaks and that's how I am able to um, find out if there is presence of pesticides and whether and and how much there is so I can quantify them as well. And so some of your samples are known that you know that those hives 
were nearby crops that were sprayed and some mm. weren't. And so you're looking for if there are any residual mm. compounds found in those bee products or bees themselves. Yep. So I collected um, samples from hives that were in commercial settings where, where I know that there's a spraying going on and I know that um, the bees are collecting. And so I collect my samples from there. And do you have any, so you'll look to see whether or not you find pesticides in mm. your bee samples. Mm. Do you also have markers of health of those bee samples so that you can see if the presence of pesticides is related to hive health or bee health? Um, currently, no, because this, this method of um, sampling is destructive. So what that means is that if I collect a, a bee, for example, um, I will have to freeze it. In, in, in a freezer so, so so it's no longer alive when I when I do my analysis. So so I then I can't um, use it for the same same B like um, health health marker wise. So like for health markers you can look at like I guess foraging behavior, longevity and um, quite a few health parameters, I guess. Um, such as weight gain or um, Hive productivity, meaning like um, how much honey they can produce, or all like quite quite a lot of different things. Um, but to do that, I think that will be next season's work, where I then tie it in, mm-hmm. because for this season, um, or this past season, I was more focused on collecting stuff and making sure that I've got my method validated, so so that I know that it's working and mm-hmm. that there is residual pesticides in hives. So when you collect your samples, you know, you're going to go back next season mm. and you've mentioned this is the method that you use this time we've got to freeze things. Could you, like when you go and collect, make those markers of hive health? And yeah. is that, can you link those from like one bee in the hive being um, linked and to the pesticide amount in that one bee being linked to like the overall hive health? Yeah, so, so what we're thinking of doing is using... Um, little tags on bees that my colleague has developed for his project. So those little backpacks. Yeah, it's like a little microchip or a a little microchip that is really really small, really really tiny. You stick it onto the back of bees, and you can then track where they go and their foraging behavior. You can look at um, the duration of their foraging. Like um, you can possibly look at um, mortality as well, how long they live, depending on whether you are able to t- detect the um, tags for, for how long. So say like for maybe like two days and then like you don't see the tag ever again, then you can then assume that the bee is probably dead. Yeah. Mm. So that data all kind of tells you about how active and yeah. how healthy they are. Yeah, that's activity cool. and stuff. Mm. So that's really cool. So that's one bit where we're going to um, look at. And the other bit, I guess, would be... Um, the gut microbiome of honeybees. That's the second bit where I'm looking at because um, if bees are consuming um, honey and pollen that are contaminated with um, pesticides, I'm quite interested in trying to find out, uh, trying to investigate or explore to see if their gut uh, microbiomes are being affected because um, the gut microbiome is... I would say it's an emerging area of science that has been shown to be important for insect health, not just bees, but a lot of other um, insect species as well. And there are 
really cool research being done and are being published about gut health and honeybee health and how these are interlinked and the interaction between them. So what kind of things will you look at in the gut and how do you even look at a bee's gut health? Because, I mean, we would kind of think as humans it's like poo samples, but also you can do some things with um, biopsies and things like that so you can see the yeah. genes. So, so um, what I'm currently looking at is through dissecting the gut of a bee. So you get the bee's gut out and you can do two things. One we call is um, what we call as a culturable method. That means that you plate the honeybee gut out onto agar media and let the bacteria or the microbiome grow and see what is on there. And the other bit is what we call non-culturable approaches where you basically sequence the genes, the, ge the genome, and then you find out what is in there. It's so fascinating, Ming Yong. Um, so stick with us, and for part three, we'll delve more into what future implication of Ming Yong's research could mean for hive productivity. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and we are talking about the gut health of honeybees and how it can affect their foraging behaviour. My name is Kelsey Picard and I'm joined by Neve Chapman along with our expert guest Ming Yong Lim from the University of Tasmania's Institute of Agriculture. Um, so Ming Yong, that was so interesting to hear about how these, the, these insects' gut microbiology could be impacting all kinds of overall health of the honeybees and even affect their behaviour. Um, I'm sure it's a really exciting uh sort of area to be researching um i just this is a little bit uh off topic but you mentioned earlier that they collect their pollen and, and ferment it into sort of a bread and i remember talking to other microbiologists about how important it is for us to eat fermented foods for the health of our own micro um gut flora and i was just thinking you know i wonder if bees are clever enough that you know by fermenting their pollen before they eat it they're keeping their guts really healthy it could be, uh, it could very well be true um, from the papers that I've read and from my own understanding, the um, it is a bit of a grey area because no one has um, properly delved into into this, 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 to try to answer this specific question. But I know that there are supposedly microbes, um, such as bacteria and fungi, that um, help drive this fermentation process and it's beneficial for... Um, bee bread. So basically, what bee bread do, uh, the the purpose of bee bread or this fermentation process is so that they can store store the pollen for uh, longer duration and prevent spoilage. But there has also been hypothesis that this could have potential health benefits. Yeah, but I'm not too I'm not too sure about all of that because I I myself haven't fully gone into that level of detail. But I know it is a possibility. Yeah, I think it's just so interesting. Um, so when we're talking about things like sprays on crops that may be affecting uh, the gut microbiome of bees, um, you know, things things that they're spraying on them might be negatively influencing the populations of microbes that are living in the guts. Um, what sort of, how, how would your research inform sprays spraying practices of farmers. So if you could figure out whether there is a negative relationship with sprays and gut health of bees. I think that is always a hard question because 
um, pesticides, well, if they have negative effects on bees, we you can't really say don't ever spray them again because um, for farmers or for growers, it's their livelihood. And, and if you don't spray and if you don't have any other um, effective control measures, then your crops will be decimated by um, whatever you're trying to control. So like fungal diseases or whatever that is ailing your, your crop. Um, and that can have very important economic um, consequences for the growers as well. So I think it's a balance between both. Um, what I guess what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to provide this information so that if it does have an effect, then growers will have all the information available and they can then make more informed decisions about um, what is the balance between both. Maybe um, I spray less or maybe I spray at specific times or maybe it, it's just up to individual growers and their decisions about how they want to go and how we're, how we're better able to protect our, our pollinators but also maintain good productivity um, in terms of your crops and your fruits and your vegetables and all of those. Do you think there is a role, like do for individual hobby beekeepers, like do they play a role in supporting the existence of bees? Because, you know, since the global conversation mm -hmm. of bee population decline, it seems like lots of people are considering that, but I've always wondered, is that actually helpful or harmful? Um, I think it's a two-edged sword. Like sword. Um, if you're doing the right thing, then obviously it's good, but it, it's good in the sense that you, you're then keeping a population of bees available. Um, but also, if, you're be if your bees have um, diseases, so if they have like bacteria infections and fungal infections or diseases prevalent, or if they have mites and, and um, you didn't notice it in time, or if it's if, if, if the bees are then able to travel around and then spread that, being a source of um, infection point um, for the neighbouring area, then that could be a problem. But I think it's both good and bad. I don't think that, that like, you know, when you say that I'm a, a hobby beekeeper, then you, I, I guess, support that, that preservation of pollinators. There's no real, like, by doing this, you can... Um, it, it's, it, it's basically... I don't think there's a straightforward answer, like there's no right or wrong. Yep. It's, yeah, it's That's up to the fair situation. enough. That's pretty cool. And it's good to know. It's kind of interesting what you say about it, even as at the hobby level, it's important to be maintaining the health of your bees that mm. you are keeping in their hive. Mm. That's great. Thank you for listening uh, to That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you science-ready content. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review so we can spread the good word of science to more people. My name is Dr. Neve Chapman and I'd like to thank my co-host Kelsey Pickard for setting us up with an awesome expert guest, Meng Yong Lim from the University of Tasmania. Until next time, thank you and goodbye. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science at all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. 
GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.